0: New Year. It's good to see you in 2023. It's good to uh, be together with the Lord's people to worship and adore our God, not only in song, but now in the Word of God. And before we inch further in getting into God's Word, let's go before His throne of grace and let's pray. Father God, I come to You acknowledging, Father, that I need You in this moment, in every moment. But Father, especially right now, as I feel the weightiness of Your Word, for Your Word is heavy at times. And Lord, I pray that You will grant the grace for me to declare Your truth. I pray that, Father, You will give us eyes to see how mysteries, unsolvable mysteries are spiritually applicable to our daily Christian life. Father, help us today as we wrestle with your word, Lord. May we be blessed. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen and amen. Well, If you will take your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, we'll pick up in our series in the book of Ephesians, although I'm going to some selected scriptures this morning. um, We will still um, read verse 4. That's where we were for a couple of weeks before we took a little bit of a detour and break. Uh, during the Christmas holiday time. Uh, If you will remember, we have established some things in looking at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. And let's just go ahead and read that verse. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to go back up to verse 3 and probably read several verses here, but verse 4 is where we're stuck for a little while. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace. Which He has blessed us in the Beloved. I carefully tiptoed into verse 4, knowing that most people are uneasy when you get to a text like that, uh, dealing with the eternal, mysterious counsels of God, uh, because we... We want everything to be easy and understandable. We want everything to be toned down. And we want everything to be able to fit in our little prefabricated theological easy answer box. My friend, welcome to the Bible. It's deep. It'll stretch you, okay? It'll stretch you. It'll pull you apart at times. We establish the fact that God makes a choice, God's choice, not yours. That bothers our pride. God makes a choice. God makes a first choice. God does. And God, we saw, did, made a choice before we were ever a thought to our parents, before we were ever in the world, before the foundation of the world. God made a choice. And that choice was made of a particular group of people. It was particularly made of us, us who, us, the saints, whom He's writing to. Writing to the Christians. That the Christians are the Christians because they were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And that is a high and lofty mystery. And if you look at it, and you start trying to figure out how God's choice and my responsibility goes hand in hand, it ain't happening. Okay? This isn't like an addition problem, one plus one equals two. This is like a, what you call a tensor equation that deals with multilinear realities that you can't wrap your mind around this side of heaven. It is what it is, as I told you. I didn't bring my little sign in here this morning. But I want to step back just a minute from the rigorous exposition of verse 4. Because there are some other things. I wanted to talk about how this choice is made in Christ. And, oh, that's a glorious thing. Because if he didn't make that choice in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he made it because of who I was, we'd be in trouble. If he made it because of who you were, we'd be in trouble. But he didn't. He made it in Christ. We may deal with that later on. I wanted to talk about how the in-mark goal of that is to be holy and blameless before him because that phrase is in the end of that, but I'm not to do that today. What I want to do today is I want to look at some selected scriptures with the base of operations being this high and lofty verse that is dealing with the doctrine of election, and I want us to think about some spiritually practical application of this great, mysterious, hard to understand, incomprehensible reality called election. How, why, 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 why even preach it? I mean, I've been pastored 20 years, and there have been more than one occasion when I've had people say, Well, you know, why even preach it if it's a mystery that cannot be solved, the side of heaven? And my response is always the same because it's in the Bible. Because it's in. The Bible, And because it's in the Bible, I know that there is profound application to it. Somehow. You know how I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. But what does Paul write over in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter number 3? Um, he says this in verse 16. He says, All Scripture. Guess what? That includes Ephesians 1.4. He says, All Scripture is useful. For doctrine and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, I want us to see this morning some good uses of this biblical doctrine we theologically refer to as election. Thus, I would drop as a title over the teaching this morning, The Mystery of Divine Election Spiritually Applied. Um, Before we get started, though, I'd like to quote one of my favorite dead old preachers, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon was faced with somewhat of this same issue and and dilemma. And, And this is what Spurgeon says. He says, And he's talking about the text of Ephesians 1-4, although this applies to many other different places. But this is what Spurgeon said, okay? He said, if there were no other text in the sacred word except this one, I think we should all be bound to receive and acknowledge the truthfulness and the great and glorious doctrine of God's ancient choice of His family. But there seems to be an ongoing prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine, although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians, some with caution, others with pleasure, yet this one seems to be the most frequently disregarded and dis- discarded In many of our pulpits, and this was true in the 1800s, and it's true today, by the way. He goes on, he says, in many of our pulpits, it would be considered a great sin and treason to preach a sermon on election because they could not make practical application of the discussion. I believe that they have clearly misjudged the truth of this subject. Whatever God has revealed, He has revealed for a purpose. There is nothing in Scripture that cannot, under the influence of God's Spirit, be turned into a practical lesson because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. Um, At Some purpose of spiritual usefulness. It is true that it cannot be turned into a lesson on fr- the free will of man, but it can be turned into a practical sermon on the free grace of God. And sermons on the free grace of God are the best because they bring the two dro- doctrines of God's unchanging love to bear upon the hearts of saints and sinners alike. In quote, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, I want to convey to you some practical truth that's not only dealing with verse 4 but the multiplicity of verses that address this doctrine I wrestled with this for years as a young believer and once you see it you realize it's everywhere in scripture don't you brother it's everywhere it's, it's from Genesis to Revelation you see it you see it you see it. Um, I want you to understand what, what, why, why would God even, even do this? Why, why show us these things? Why would God reveal to us a hard to understand truth? Especially hard to understand when you take in consideration the free agency of man. Why would God reveal to us information that we cannot fully wrap our minds around? Information that can potentially cause great upset amongst people in the local church. Why would God do it? Well, there's mighty spiritual benefits in it. Number one, first benefit that I would give you is that the mystery of election ought to produce awe in the heart of the Christian it ought to produce awe and adoration and admiration for how great and how mighty and how big our God is. His greatness. His greatness. You remember, the Lord spoke to Moses in Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, And this is what the Lord said to Moses. He said, "...the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever." It is a revealed thing, the doctrine of election. It is a secret thing why God makes His choice and how the choice that God makes harmonizes with our responsibility of receiving the Gospel. We are responsible for receiving the Gospel. We are accountable for receiving the Gospel. We must receive the Gospel. That is not the issue here. The issue is how do you make this harmonize with the reality that no one receives the Gospel of their own? That it is God's choice? How do you wrap your mind around. You can't. And until you get to the place where you realize you can't have an answer for everything in life this side of heaven, you're going to drive yourself crazy. You're going to come to conclusions that it's not what the Bible is saying. You're going to try to doctor it up and make it say things that it's not, that's not really there. And I don't want to be like that. I want to say what it is and let it be what it is. And that's what we have to do. With this truth. Um, Now why do that? Why reveal to us a thing that is secret and unsolvable in our finite mind? Why do that? Why reveal in part and hide in part? Because we see in part. You know, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. And this isn't just true with the doctrine of election. Uh, God does this with multiple items of Scripture. But why? Here's why. It keeps God big. It shows the majesty of God. It highlights the sovereign majesty and glory of God. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the ruler of all things. There is not one thing that does not occur or happen apart from His sovereign determination or His sovereign permission. Nothing. He rules. That's how good, that's how big God is. God's not some little impotent deity that's waiting on us before he has permission to do anything. He rules. He rules. He rules. And so, this keeps God big. You see, you know what it's like when, think of it like this. Maybe when you were a kid, you had the family member, when you had family get-togethers that could do amazing little card tricks. And, you know, he'd tell you, pick a card, any card, pick a card, pick it. And you'd choose your card, and you'd take the deck, and you'd shuffle it, and you'd mix it up. And every single time, unbeknownst to you, he had a secret, a way of identifying what that card was. But it amazed you. You know, when you're five, six years old, how in the world amazes you? Well... The same thing, in a similar fashion, here, um, just as the kid amazed at that family member's ability, just as that, if we were amazed at that, in a similar fashion, the, the tension and discrepancy with trying to understand between the revelation that's in Scripture and the secret thing that is there, it ought to be awe-inspiring. We ought to be amazed at God of how they can be So. Two things that seem absolutely paradoxical, absolutely contradictory, can be absolute truths in the realm of eternity. They are. It's kind of like me asking you, who wrote the book of Romans? Some of you would start to say, well, Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it, I've got it. Paul an apostle, it says it right there, and you'd be right. But we have somebody over here that says, No, it was God. Well, they would be right. God wrote it, Paul wrote it, God breathed it, Paul, and it harmonizes together in a way that that's a little bit easier for us to understand. But there are deep truths and deep realities like God's sovereign choice and election that are beyond us. And we can have little infights in the church all across this land, arguing over, what's this and that? Just let God be God. Okay? And don't neglect your responsibility. Let God be God. Okay? Let Him be God. Let the language of a text speak for itself. Let it speak for itself. Uh, I'm telling you, you will be blessed. Here's the thing though, when we come to places like this, as we're growing as Christians, when we come to a place, we usually get real frustrated. That's our first reaction to it. But our frustrations are designed to lead us into an inspiring wrestling match with God. To, to, to lead us to be in awe of God and to be in awe of Him. And that's a good thing, okay? It's not the immediate result, but it is the result. And I think sometimes because the immediate result is not this awe of God. It's usually our frustration. We just give up, disregard, decide, I don't even want to deal with it. And that's not good. Okay. John Piper makes this assessment, and I want to quote him for a minute. He says, "We Americans are especially pragmatic and demanding. If we don't see the payoff of a doctrine immediately, we tend to ignore it. We're like foolish children when we do that. Every parent knows that children must be made to learn things without knowing how they will someday be useful. We teach them particulars of, the t- of table manners when they're small, for example, so that later they will be able to navigate every social situation with grace. And they don't have a clue why you're telling them to hold a spoon in a certain way or to keep their elbows off the table. They have to take your word for it that the sun is standing still and the earth is a ball and the green vegetables will make you healthy and a little bag of rat poison will kill you. If children must know these things before they know why and how, imagine the distance between us and God and how much we may have to know without knowing how it will help us. End quote. And even right now, some of you probably think, I don't understand why you got to camp out three or four weeks under this verse. It's because you probably had not heard very many sermons on it at all. Probably not, and i don't want you to be i don't want you to miss out on what God is saying, and I want you to be helped by it, aided by it and so I, that's one of the reasons i'm stopping to to show you some of the uses. One of them is that it will bring you to a place of being in awe of God. Even more, you think you're in awe of God now. But the bigger God becomes, the more majestic He is. The more in control that He is. Oh my goodness, the bedrock upon which you may rest your faith. <laughs> You'll become immovable. Amen. Amen. Alright. Now. Second application of this is that the mystery of election is it's intended to produce assurance and security in the life of the believer it should should produce assurance and a sense of security you remember what Paul said and. Romans 8 and verse 33, he said, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's a question. He goes, it's God who justifies. Who? It's a rhetorical question. Can't nobody bring a charge against the elect of God? Those who were chosen from before the foundation of the earth were laid. Think about the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. Verse 22 through 30, he says this. It says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I I told you, and you do not believe. uh, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Hmm. My sheep hear my voice. It's the effectual calling. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life. Who, my sheep that hear my voice? I will give them eternal life. And guess what? They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, given that's election in the words of Jesus, who have given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the Father are one. You hear that? If it is God who has elected you, he's got you. Do you hear me? Oh, this is so radical to some of your minds, I know. But He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. You remember what Paul wrote in, in Romans 8 and verse 30? He says, "In those whom He predestined. Again, that's not my word. That's Bible. Right? He says, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, they're going all the way back into eternity. Listen, before you were ever born and there was a point in time, yes, when you received Jesus Christ and you were born again and you repented and you trusted in Him, that's when it was made a reality in real time. But it goes all the way back in eternity past. But your ending, He says you're glorified. You're not glorified yet, but it's past Him. Listen, your ending, the end point of your salvation, was secured before you ever had a beginning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, brother Jimmy, you got it, don't you, brother? <laughs> That's a precious thing. That's a precious thing. Number three, the tr- mystery of election ought to awaken a God-entranced view of all things. Now, I I know you're thinking, what in the world? What do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. That phrase, God-entranced view, is not original to me. That is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards um, came up with that phrase. Let me explain that to you. See, it... The doctrine of election, the understanding of the sovereignty of God, it helps our feeble minds, minds that are weakened by the fall, it helps us to better see God as the supreme, all-satisfying sovereign who is at the center of right understanding of the world from everything from salvation to science. That God is, as Jonathan Edwards said this, and I'll quote him, The whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the uh, affair. That's what it is to have a God-entranced view of things. You see God all the way through everything. From A to Z. You see God in everything. Well, I tell you, in my own wrestling match with the doctrine of the truth of election, it was Piper who taught me... And I quote him right now. The doctrine of election tends to give firmness and fiber to flabby minds. It tends to produce robust, thoughtful Christians who are not swept away by trendy, man-centered ideas. It has an amazing preservative power that works to keep other doctrines from being diluted and lost. In general, it tends to press onto our minds a God-centered worldview built out of objective truth, end quote. Wow. To me, that is a powerful thought. Number four, the mystery of election ought to promote humility in our lives. It's another spiritually applicable thing. It ought to produce humility in our lives because you know that God is God and man is not. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, the old is gone and all is passed away. And it is in the next thing, beginning of verse 18, it says, And it is because of him, this is all because of him, God, that it even happens. God, he gets the glory. For by grace you're saved. This is not of yourselves, writes Paul. It is the gift of God, lest Any man what? Boast. So it's there. It's to produce humility. You realize, I didn't do it. God does it. I am just dependent by His grace on His mercy. I am dependent upon Him for every single thing. He's God. I'm not. And it produces humility. And humility is an indispensable quality in our life of growing and sanctification. Because the opposite of humility is to be full of pride. And we know that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Wow. Now, number five. The mystery of election ought to to give confidence in evangelism. The mystery of election ought to give confidence in evangelism. You see, a lot of people, when they start trying to they start trying to come up with trying to get an answer for what's unanswerable, they sit back and think, well, if you really believe that, why are you going to share Christ with anybody? If you really think that it's God's choice, why are you going to evangelize? If it's God's choice, why does that have to undermine evangelism? If anything, it ought to give confidence in your evangelism. It ought to give confidence in it. Um, you see... Rather, we should feel the weight of going and telling people about our glorious God and telling them about this glorious gospel. But we should have confidence in knowing that the results of our sharing is not dependent upon us. Do you hear me? You don't have to be a theologian to share the gospel. You don't have to have an answer and all the techniques to share the gospel. And you ought to want to go out and share this great Christ that shed His blood and bore your sins on the cross and tell others. And Listen, you're not it's not dependent upon your skill and your apologetical ability as to whether you're going to be able to convince them of the gospel. Only God... It's the, listen, God, you just share Christ and you have the confidence of knowing that it's God who saves... And He will not save apart from the sharing of the gospel. Do you hear me? Let me say that again, lest you misunderstand me. God will not save a soul apart from the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 1, he start, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he starts out talking about that mystery of election. But he ends up at the end of chapter 1 talking about, And you were included in him, having heard the gospel of truth. Having heard it and believed in him, you were sealed in him with the precious Holy Spirit. God, the gospel is indispensable. For it is the power of God unto salvation. So don't misunderstand me. But what I want you to feel is the tension. I don't see how I connect the dots. I don't see how... Quit trying to connect the dots. I'm trying to help you see how you deal with truths like this. When you come to them in Scripture, they they appear to be contradictions, but they're not. They're antinomy. They're antinomical. They're not... They are realities that connect outside of the parameters of our understanding. Just let it be what it is. It is what it is. Now, fifth application and it, it, or six, actually, I've given you what, I've given you five, yeah of a sixth application. Of this, and it, this is connected to the fact that it ought to give you confidence in evangelism is that the mystery of election ought to amplify a passion for global missions. If it's giving you confidence in evangelism, then you ought to want to see and hope to see the spread of the gospel around the world, and it ought to encourage global missions. And I, I want you to know is that a lot of the major, global, worldwide missionary efforts were started by men that had a high view of the sovereignty of God, that had a high view of the doctrine of election. Men like William Carey. You may not know the name unless you've been sitting in a Baptist history class. But William Carey is known as the father of, of modern missions. Um, you've got men like David Livingston. Had a high view the doctrine of election. Missionary to Africa, missionary to Zambia. His body's buried at Westminster Abbey, but his heart's literally buried in Zambia. You have people think of people today. Uh, David Platt, who was at one time president of the International Mission Board, had a pretty high view of the sovereignty of God and a high view of the doctrine of election. You can think about men like, even right now, Kevin Ezell. I don't know if you know that name. He is the president of the North American Mission Board. There was some controversy about him a few years ago, but I think a lot of that was just rabble. He has a high view of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. And they're all about missions. So, don't think this is undermining missions. It's in any way you treat this. If it takes away from evangelism or from missions, that's heretical. And do not think, do not make the mistake of lumping everybody that has the gumption to submit to the truth of what the scripture is saying with election. Don't lump everybody into this, oh, they're hyper Calvinist and they probably don't even evangelize or share the gospel, because that is not true. That is not true. That's what somebody told you. And they lie. They lie from pulpits all the time. Getting on their hobby horses when they haven't studied the depth of Scripture. Mm. Now, your own pastor... Wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with the reality of election and with the reality of I understand the weight that I must share the gospel or I'm not gonna see men saved or wrestling with that. At one time felt the great call and fairly was was so so overwhelmed with a passion for evangelism. I wanted to go into full-time evangelism. I didn't want to pastor churches, but the Lord rerouted me. But the whole time with the passion of my evangelism, it was still fueled by a right understanding by God's grace of election. Wow. Seventh and final. I got a seven-pointer this morning and that's no pun intended. That's a theological joke. But number seven, the truth of, of and mystery of election, it ought to awaken, somehow awakens a hunger for practical holiness in your life. Because you go back to verse 4 in Ephesians, it talks about how He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And that point's not up there, by the way, if you're looking for it. I only gave Him six. <laughs> Now please hear my heart I want God to be glorified not me you should want God to be glorified not you salvation's the work of God and God has called us his church to be a part of spreading the gospel and that is what we are to do Anytime we don't do that, we are sinning. You hear me? We are sinning when we don't share the gospel. And we are sinning if we throw back our weight on the doctrine of election and say, well, what will be, will be. Well, I got news for you. You got the devil in your head because that is not what this is about. You hear me? But I do want you to feel the weight. The weight of this doctrine. its heavy. It's not to be treated lightly. It's not to be treated precariously. It's—it's it's heavy. It's not to be ignored. It, you know what? It—it brings you in submission to the sovereign authority of God. Wow. Now, if there is anybody here this morning that feels the weight of their sin. Maybe you've been in church for a while, but you've never experienced the new birth. You feel conviction on your heart because of your sin. You feel the weight of your sin. And I'm telling you that that is God. And I'm going to tell you to call on Christ, and I'm going to tell you to look to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only one who saves and he's mighty to save and you come just as you are and you let him be your confidence because God saves. It's that you're not working it up. It's not listen. It's not how you do it. Do you know I spent years as a young believer trying to understand, wrestling with my own assurance of salvation, trying to figure out whether I prayed the little prayer on the back of a track right or not. I wasn't saved by that prayer on the back of a track. I was saved by the person of Jesus Christ who's mighty to save. And I want you to know He'll save you right now. He'll save you right now. And He'll cover the darkest of darkness in your life. And you will walk in the light of life and never walk in darkness again. Wow. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.